Uh, so we are uh, coming to the last week of our Union and Communion series, and perhaps some of you are like, finally, you know, I breathe a sigh of relief. I don't know, some of you might have really thrived in the last three weeks, I'm not sure. Uh, but we, we looked at church membership, just to refresh, uh, the context in, in which we experience both baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, then last week, Adam took us uh, through the topic of baptism, uh, which we, uh, he unpacked as, as baptism being the sign and seal of our union with Christ and his people. Uh, and today we're looking at, at the Lord's Supper, uh, which we understand as a Presbyterian church to be the sign and seal of our communion with Christ and his people. Uh, so if you're here for the first time today, that's where we've got this title, Union and Communion. Uh, we think that's, uh, that really sums up the series. Uh, and as we look at the Lord's Supper, we're looking at this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, in doing that, uh, I recognize we're, we're just kind of jumping into a book that uh, some people here might not know uh, too much about. Uh, so just a, a little bit of background uh, about the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, in general, what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians is responding to a whole lot of issues in the life of the church. Uh, some of those responses are coming because the Corinthians have asked Paul specific questions. What do you think about this? Uh, other responses are happening uh, because uh, Paul's heard reports of what's happening in the life of the church. He's got connections, right? the, the inside goss, as it were. Uh, and in chapters 11 to 14 of, uh, of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul is in particular dealing with a whole lot of issues in the, in the Sunday gatherings of the church in Corinth. Uh, and so today, in that context, he turns to the topic of the Lord's Supper. And if you uh, were listening as Stuart uh, read the Bible reading, which I hope you were, uh, it's pretty clear that when it comes to the Lord's Supper, this church in Corinth is in complete disarray. They're all over the shop when it comes to their observance of the Lord's Supper. Uh, to such, a, such an extent that in many ways, uh, the big idea of this passage uh, is that the Lord's Supper, which really should be a place where God's people receive his blessing, uh, in Corinth has become a place where God's people are receiving his discipline and judgment. Right? The, the Lord's Supper, which should be a place where God's people receive the, the kind of fullness of his blessing in Corinth, has become a place where they're receiving his discipline and his judgment. That's the big idea. Uh, and we're going to uh, explore that big idea under three different headings, the distortion of the Lord's Supper, the institution of the Lord's Supper, and the correction of the Lord's Supper. You can see that in the sermon outline in the Connect card, if that's useful for you to follow. So that, let's, let's look at the distortion of the Lord's Supper. It would be good if you have the, uh, the passage in front of you. We're looking at verses 17 uh, to 22 in particular. Look there in verse 17. Uh, Paul says, In the following directives I have no praise for you. Uh, Paul's dealing with a whole lot of issues. Back in verse 2, if you've got uh, an actual Bible open with all of chapter 11, uh, you'll see that back in verse 2, Paul did praise the Corinthians. You know, the church is a bit of a mess, but they're not getting everything wrong. Uh, Paul had given them some teaching about how men and women uh, should relate to one another in the life of the church. Uh, and he praises them because, by and large, they've put that teaching into practice. But here, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, verse 17, verse 22, he's got no praise for them because they haven't observed the teaching that he passed on to them. And it's clear, isn't it, when you read verses 17 to 22, that it's actually not just isolated to the Lord's Supper, uh, but it's really that their entire service of worship. Look there, verse 17. I can't praise you, Paul says, because your, your meetings, right, your times of kind of coming together as a whole church, uh, your meetings do more harm than good. Well, that is an absolute indictment on a church, isn't it? People are worse off spiritually at the end of your meetings than they are at the start. 
Your meetings do more harm than good, Paul says. The Sunday services in Corinth were spiritually toxic. And that's perhaps even more convicting because I'm sure, at least externally, the church in Corinth were doing lots of the right things. Ticking lots of boxes. What should Christians do when they meet together? Well, they should hear a bit of the scriptures read and listen to some different people speak and say some prayers and sing some songs. Uh, See some people baptized. They're obviously sharing in the Lord's Supper, ticking lots of the right boxes externally. Uh, But Paul says their services still are doing more harm than good. Uh, their services are toxic. They're toxic. Uh, why? Because verse 18, uh, the, 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 kind of the, the most toxic thing about their services is the fact that there's, their church is full of divisions. Full of divisions. And you see, this is something that Paul's heard a report about. He says, I hear uh, that there are divisions uh, among you. I know maybe it's interesting to know that that word divisions uh, is the, uh, the word schisma in Greek, which is where we get our word schisms. Now, I just say that's interesting, not because I want to show off my knowledge of Greek, but I reckon schisms feels even more abrupt than divisions. Like this is a church that's thoroughly divided. There's schisms in it. Uh, similarly, the, the word differences in verse 19 uh, is really more literally factions or sects. And so this is a really divided church. It's not just a kind of minor disagreements, but a church that's thoroughly divided. And it's so much so that Paul can hardly believe it when he hears this report. He only believes it in part, he says. But look in verse 19. I don't know if you notice this, but verse 19 is really weird, isn't it? Verse 19. No doubt there have to be differences among you, Paul says. Now, now, clearly, Paul's not saying that divisions are good in and of themselves in a church. Paul's writing to try and get rid of the divisions. But he is saying, I think this is what this verse is saying. He's saying that even where there are differences and divisions in a church, God is at work. God is sovereign over everything. That's why he says there have to be divisions. There must be divisions. It is sort of necessary for there to be divisions. Why? Well, look at the end of the verse to show which of you have God's approval. Which is really saying uh, so that uh, the, the believers who are true believers, genuine believers, can be shown out for, for who they are. So that the, 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 in the context of, of division or difference or conflict, actually true believers put on the true traits of Christ and show themselves to have God's approval. They're, they're sort of recognized as being a true follower of the Lord Jesus. Uh, I certainly am not someone who likes conflict. And probably not many of us are. Even actually minor differences of opinion or disagreements uh, can and do weigh heavily on me. Particularly with brothers and sisters in Christ that I love. But conflict does have a way of revealing our true character, doesn't it? It's when we're under pressure that in a sense our, our true self pops out. Sometimes in good ways, sometimes in very ugly ways. Uh, so I think what Paul's saying here is that sometimes uh, God allows differences or, or divisions into the life of his people uh, so that those who are truly his can put that on display, can show themselves to be genuine believers. 
Uh, and I just, I've dwelt on this a little bit. It's not the main point of this passage, but I've dwelt on it a bit uh, in the context of us looking at this, uh, doing this series. Uh, we've looked at a whole bunch of secondary matters, matters that faithful Christians can clearly have differences of belief in. Church membership, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Uh, and I did, let me just encourage you, uh, let, I encourage us all to show ourselves to be true believers. Show ourselves to have, uh, to, to have God's approval by how we treat one another with dignity and respect and gentleness and humility and patience, uh, despite having differences on some of these things. But this is an opportunity for us. Not that I'm saying we're thoroughly divided in schisms and factions, right? That's not what I'm saying. But there are some differences of opinion. It's, good. it's a good opportunity for us to relate to one another well as the body of Christ. So we've got this divided church, and then verses 20 to 22, it's clear that the divisions are on full display at the Lord's Supper. In fact, Paul says they're so divided at the Lord's Supper that they've completely distorted it. The Lord's Supper in Corinth is a little bit like, uh, I remember as a kid, I can't remember exactly where, maybe it was at the Bendigo show or something like that. Uh, My parents are here, but I remember going into... Like maybe like a fun house, and there are all those different mirrors. You know, there's mirrors. You look in one, and you look really skinny. You look in one, you look really fat. You look in uh, another one, and it just completely distorts who you are beyond recognition. That's what the Corinthians are like when it comes to the Lord's Supper. Completely distorted beyond recognition. So much so, verse 20, Paul says, "So when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat." You see what Paul's saying? Don't kid yourselves. I know there's bread. I know there's juice. I know externally you're going through all the motions of the Lord's Supper. But you're not sharing the Lord's Supper. It's not the Lord's Supper that you're sharing. You're so divided at the Supper, Paul says, that you've distorted it beyond recognition. And those divisions, verses 21 and 22, are along, are along socio-economic lines, aren't they? You see, maybe a little bit of context here is different. Some of you might know that in the early church, they shared in the Lord's Supper in a very different way to us. You know, they would have met together, perhaps as a whole church. They would have shared a meal, a full meal each Sunday. And then really at the climax of that meal, they would have shared in the Lord's Supper. And so when the Corinthians were doing this, you can see there that the wealthy believers were kind of gorging themselves on their kind of massive buffet over lunch. They're getting drunk. And the poorer believers are completely neglected and they go home hungry. And Paul's horrified at this, isn't he? Horrified. Don't you have homes to have your dinner parties in? This is no dinner party, Paul says. This is a sacred meal. So that, that, that's the distortion of the Lord's Supper uh, in Corinth. And really the emphasis in, the, in verses 17 to 22 is on the importance of unity in the church, particularly at the moment of the Lord's Supper. Why is unity important, perhaps particularly at the Lord's Supper? Because the Lord's Supper is not a, a private supper. You see Paul's condemnation of the wealthy believers saying, acting as if it's a private supper for them. No, no, the Lord's Supper is not a private supper between you and Jesus. The Lord's Supper is a, a public supper for the whole people of God. For the, all the people of God to meet with the Lord Jesus. It's a meal for all of God's people to enjoy their communion with Christ and with one another. 
So what are the implications for that, for who should be present at the Lord's Supper and who should partake of the Lord's Supper? Right, this emphasis on unity. Uh, well, first, when it comes to who should be present, uh, we think our whole church family should be present. Uh, four times you'll see in this passage, in fact, possibly more than that, Paul refers to the Corinthians coming together as a church. I take that to, to refer to the, the regular public gathering of the whole church. Not to a midweek, midweek Bible study or to a couple of believers praying together, but to, to the, the corporate gathering of the whole church. And so we think this means that our whole church family should be present at the Lord's Supper. Uh, a little while ago we started uh, the, the, I guess, trajectory towards that by getting the, the primary age kids back and their leaders. Uh, but from now on, we're actually going to bite the bullet and uh, try to get all the Christ children back and their leaders as well. Now we recognise that's going to be a logistical nightmare perhaps. Uh, people are going to be wrangling kids. It's, it's going to be a bit chaotic. We're happy, actually happy to live with a bit of the chaos because we want to be driven by this biblical conviction, not just by what is easier. And so we're going to work towards having our whole church family present at the Lord's Supper. Does that mean that everyone who's present should partake of the Lord's Supper? Who should partake? Are we think first the Lord's Supper is for Christians? Right? The Lord's Supper is for people who have been uh, united with the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Uh, for how can someone uh, come into communion with Christ if they're not already in union with Christ by faith? It just doesn't seem to make sense, right? So the Lord's Supper is for Christians, and so when we share in the Lord's Supper at DPC, we encourage anyone who's present with us, or who might not yet be a Christian, who hasn't yet taken the Lord Jesus in faith for themselves, we encourage those people to receive Christ and not receive the bread and juice. Because there's nothing special. Like, the bread and juice will do them no good if they have not already taken Christ in faith. Right? So that's our encouragement to anyone who's present who's not yet a Christian, who hasn't got saving faith themselves. The Lord's Supper is for Christians. Uh, the Lord's Supper, uh, we think, is for baptised Christians. Maybe a bit more controversial. We think it makes logical and theological sense that if someone uh, wants to come and share in the sacrament uh, of communion with Christ, if they want to receive that sacrament, then they should first have received the sacrament of union with Christ, being baptised. That's not uncommon historically uh, as a position. So from now on, we're going to invite all baptised Christians to come and share in the Lord's Supper with us. Now, once again, we recognise that that's a, that's a change. That's a change. I particularly want to speak to those of you here who've been a part of our church for a while and you've been sharing with the Lord's Supper with us for quite some time. You have saving faith in the Lord Jesus. But for whatever reason, you've never been baptised. I want to say two things to you. The first is, please don't panic. We don't want you to panic. We're not going to kind of you know, bar you from the table in a heavy-handed way next month or something. Right? Please don't panic. Be kind of, we recognise that this is a change. There's going to be a transition period. Grace abounds. On the other hand, please don't delay unnecessarily. Right? Speak to us about getting baptised. 
It's a good thing to do because if you're a Christian, Jesus is your Lord and Jesus commanded his disciples to be baptised. So in simple terms, follow your Lord Jesus. And not just about obedience, is it? Get baptised because the Lord promises to encourage you spiritually through your being baptised and to encourage his people. So please don't panic, but don't delay. The Lord's Supper is for Christians, for baptised Christians. And third, uh, we think it's for baptised Christians who have the maturity to discern whether they're in unity with Christ and his people. And this is uh, like people will be talking about this in gospel communities in, during the week. Uh, we recognise that there's some difficulties with this. Well, we kind of get around it here. In a sense, I think this is particularly an issue the younger children get. I see this with my own kids. My daughter Ada says to me, Dad, I love Jesus, I trust Jesus. Why can't I have the Lord's Supper? Putting my cards on the table. What do I say? Or what questions do I ask? I don't always say this to Ada. But I ask myself, would Ada have the capacity to decide to not take the Lord's Supper for, uh, uh, for any particular reason? For example... If she considered her relationship with Christ and realised that she was living in proud, unrepentant sin that she just didn't want to confess or turn away from, would she, would she choose not to take the Lord's Supper? I think a Christian in that circumstance shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. Do our children have the capacity to make that judgement? That's one question. Would she have the capacity to, the, to discern... Uh, Am I living with unreconciled bitterness and unforgiveness in a particular relationship with a brother or sister in Christ? Should I come to the Lord's table and and show and act as if I'm in communion with people? If I should perhaps first go and, and have a conversation with that person and seek to be reconciled to them? Because the issue in Corinth is division, right? Paul says that's a big deal. And so our... Thinking as, a, uh, as the elders is that we want people to have at least some capacity to be able to say sorry to God and be willing to do that and to say sorry to someone else. Age appropriately, right? I'm not saying that, you know, but like age appropriately, we're wanting people to engage with those activities. The Lord's Supper is for Christians, for baptised Christians, and for Christians who have the maturity to discern whether. Uh, they're in unity with Christ and his people. To consider their communion with Christ and to consider their communion with his people. Let me just flick my notes. So that's uh, the, the distortion of the Lord's Supper. And let's look at, in verses 23 to 26. This is what I've called the institution of the Lord's Supper. Uh, The Corinthians really are in disarray at the Lord's Supper and so Paul wants to take them back to basics, back to the instruction manual. What is it that Christ actually said about what we're supposed to do at the Lord's Supper? And I think in these verses, you could come up with more, but we see at least four things. Four things that we're supposed to do. The first is uh, we're to watch. You see uh, that Christ is actively doing things and his disciples are passively watching things. 
Jesus is taking bread, he's giving thanks for bread, he's breaking bread and his disciples are watching that and that gives us a picture of the gospel, you see. The the, the nature of the gospel. That the good news of Christianity is not about what we do but about what Christ has done. And so there's a certain passivity in the Lord's Supper that we sit and we watch. We come to the table hungry and it's Christ who feeds us. We come to the table conscious of our sins and we embrace afresh Christ's forgiveness for us. We come to him in our weakness and frailty and he promises to strengthen us. We come to him with our doubts and fears and he assures and comforts us. We watch and we allow Christ to minister to us. A second, we listen. It's really important to listen because there are lots of different takes on what the Lord's Supper is about. Uh, So we need to listen carefully to the words of Christ uh, because his spoken words uh, interpret the visible words. Sometimes people refer, uh, refer to the bread and juices as visible words. You can see them. But what do they mean? You've got to listen carefully to the spoken words. And as we listen to Christ's word, the first thing that becomes clear, uh, and this is not, I think most of us on the same page with this, uh, that the Lord's Supper is a sign. It's a sign of Christ's death on the cross. Anna and Dan covered that wonderfully in the kids' talk. Uh, But you can see it here in verse 23. The bread we break is obviously a sign of of the body of our Lord Jesus broken on the cross. And verse 25, the juice we drink uh, is a sign of the blood of our Lord Jesus shed on the cross. Uh, But a matter, uh, a question that's important to get our heads around is what's the relationship between the sign, right, the the bread and the juice, and Jesus' body and blood? What's the connection there? Or, Or put differently, how is it that Jesus is with us or present at the Lord's Supper in particular? There's really three different answers to that. The first is that Christ is physically present. Uh, Some of you uh, perhaps uh, attend Catholic churches or you've been a part of the Catholic church uh, and you would know that this is their official position, that Christ is physically present at the Lord's Supper. Uh, So that when the priest uh, gives his special blessing uh, over the bread and the juice, even though on the outside they still look like bread and juice, uh, their substance has actually been transformed so that it's actually, literally, uh, the physical body and blood of Christ. Now, there are two big issues with that, at least two. Uh, The first is uh, that as Christians, we believe uh, that after Jesus died on the cross, he was raised from the dead uh, in his physical body uh, and he ascended into heaven where he is in his physical body at the right hand of God, living and reigning over his kingdom. Uh, So where is Jesus? Is he the risen Lord, the exalted king? Or is he being sacrificed over and over again in the Lord's Supper? Physically, the Lord Jesus is in heaven, at the right hand of God. So that's one big issue. Uh, The second big issue is uh, what the book of Hebrews makes clear, which is that Christ's physical sacrifice on the cross uh, was a once-for-all sacrifice sufficient to cleanse us of all our sins. So the idea that the Christ's physical body needs to be re-sacrificed over and over again really does undermine the sufficiency of Jesus' death on the cross. Was it enough? I'm not quite sure. I'd better go to the Lord's Supper again, to Mass again. Because I'm, I 
did it really deal with my sins? So those are the two big issues. Christ is not physically present in the supper. Now some people react to that and they say, well, Christ isn't present at all. He's not present at all. This is a, a guy by the name of Swingley. You can look him up. Uh, many of you wouldn't know this, but many of you uh, perhaps uh, do hold to the beliefs that Swingley held, uh, which is that the bread and juice are, are just signs. And they're just symbols of Christ's death. A pure remembrance. Now, of course, the Lord's Supper is a sign. I just said that, but it's not just a sign. This is the, the issue with this position. It's not just a sign. If you've got your Bible open, flick back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verses 16 and 17. Uh, if anyone who knows how to operate the heaters sees too many people falling asleep, uh, it'd be good to turn the heaters off. So it'd just stay attentive. Uh, anyway, sorry, I'm joking. But, uh, don't want people getting too cosy and comfy. Uh, so 1 Corinthians 10, uh, if you've got the, uh, your passage open, look in for, uh, from verse 16. Oh, good. Oh, someone did notice me. Verse 16, uh, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a remembrance? No, not remembrance, is it? A participation in the blood of Christ. And is not the bread that we break a sign? No, a participation in the body of Christ. You see, the Lord's Supper is a remembrance. It is a sign, absolutely. But it's not just a sign. It's a participation. That word's speaking about a real spiritual communion with Christ, which is where some of us get the name communion. Some churches call it communion. There's a spiritual sharing with Christ. What's the purpose of this communion with Christ at the Lord's Supper where he's spiritually present with us? Look in verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? So when the Israelites would offer a sacrifice in the temple, often part of that sacrifice would be set aside to be eaten by the priest or or the person offering that sacrifice. And in that sense, the people who ate and drank the sacrifices benefited in a real way from the sacrifice. And they, of course, benefited physically because they ate and drank it but they also benefited spiritually. As they ate the sacrifice, they were reminded that their sins had really been forgiven by God and they really were in fellowship with God and his people. And so Paul's saying here that those who eat and drink the Lord's Supper really do benefit from Christ's sacrifice. Why? Because Christ really is present, not physically, but spiritually. And so through our communion with Christ, we're assured that our sins actually have been forgiven and that we're in fellowship with God and his people. And so the Presbyterian position, it's one put forward by a guy named John Calvin. Uh, It's that Christ is spiritually present, that God promises that when we eat and drink the Lord's Supper in faith, uh, we don't just receive some bread and juice, And we receive Christ himself in faith. We commune with Christ. And as as we do that, uh, we're assured of all the benefits we have through his death in our place on the cross. So in that sense, the Lord's Supper is not just a sign, uh, it's a seal. We'll we'll talk uh, more about that in a little bit. 
Uh, so what are we to do at the Lord's Supper? We're to watch. That was a bit of a tangent, I recognise. We're to watch. Uh, we're to listen. Uh, third, we're to partake. Verse 26, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup. Uh, so this morning, uh, I made myself some toast and a cup of juice for breakfast. Uh, the truth is uh, that I only benefited from that juice and toast physically because I ate and drank it. I know that's complicated, right? But it was when I took it into me and, uh, that it was able to nourish and feed and strengthen me. And that's what Christ is saying here. When we receive the bread and juice in faith, we receive him and he promises that he will feed and nourish and strengthen our faith in a real communion with him. So the Lord's Supper isn't just a sign or remembrance, it's a seal. It's, a, it's sort of a moment of renewing our relationship with Christ. And we see something about that relationship in verse 26, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, where Christ says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And now Chris uh, gave us some context of this when he uh, did the call to worship and, and read that kind of chunk out of Exodus. Uh, but you, you got the story there that under the old covenant, the blood of the Passover lamb was shed to rescue his covenant people. Uh, and then God gave his people the Passover, uh, not just as a sign, but as a seal. What I mean by that is that every time they shared in, God's, uh, in the Passover, God's blessings were kind of guaranteed to them were sealed to them, that they had this renewed assurance that they were indeed God's people. Out of all the peoples on earth, God had chosen them as his treasured possession. That they really were the, the special recipients of his love and grace and mercy that, that God had provided and would provide for all their needs. All of those blessings were sealed to them. And that's the idea in the Lord's Supper, when Christ, the, the ultimate Passover lamb, shed his blood that we might be a part of his people and he gave us the Lord's Supper, uh, not just as a signpost to his death, uh, but as a regular seal of the benefits of his death. Uh, that is, uh, we partake, we're reminded that we are God's people, that he is our God, that our sins really are forgiven, uh, that we're the special recipients of his love and grace and mercy and that he will provide for all of our needs. Uh, until he comes, verse 26, or calls us home. We watch, listen, partake, and forth we proclaim. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Uh, not that many people in our church get up and preach up the front, but if you share in the Lord's Supper with us, you become a preacher. Good news, right? We're all proclaiming. And really the essence of our message is that Jesus is enough. That's our message to one another. And that in Christ and his death on the cross, God has provided all we need. All we need to be in fellowship with him both now and forever. Jesus is enough. So that's the, the institution of the Lord's Supper. Uh, and then in verses 27 uh, to 34, Paul uh, moves on to make some corrections. You, know, you see the flow of things. There's a particular issue in Corinth. He takes them back to the general words of Christ that are true for all Christians and in all places. Uh, and then he moves on to some corrections. Uh, he starts in verses 27 to 29 uh, with, I think, a general warning 
that flows on from the general instructions in verses 23 to 26. Uh, look at verse 27. Paul says, uh, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner... So I notice that's kind of more general language rather than you, which you'll go on to. Right? So whoever eats the, uh, um, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner uh, will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Now, I think if he was just talking about Corinth, uh, he would, would have said, uh, So then you, wealthy believers in Corinth who eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, are guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. I I think that would have made more sense, and that's what he goes on to say when he addresses the people in Corinth directly. But here I think he's giving general warnings for all Christians in all times, and he's saying here that Christ is spiritually present at the Lord's Supper, so eating and drinking in an unworthy manner is a big deal. It's sinning, he says, profaning the body and blood of the Lord. And now I think that sounds like something none of us would like to do. So it's important to share in the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. What, what, does, it, what does it mean to share in a worthy manner? I want to be extra, extra clear at this point. You know, if you just tune right in. Sharing the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner does not mean making yourself morally worthy. Not meeting a particular moral standard. Right? Because the Lord's Supper, what is it? It's a sign and a seal of God's grace to humble and repentant sinners. Right? So coming to the Lord's Supper worthily is not knowing that you're good enough to come, but knowing that you're not good enough to come, and but that Jesus is enough. So worthy partaking is not about making yourself morally worthy. I think in verses 28 and 29, Paul tells us two things about what eating worthily is. Uh, The first is examining yourself. Verse 28. Everyone, Paul says, ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Uh, This might not be a perfect analogy, but uh, I don't know what you think of uh, the Honourable Mr. Scott Morrison. Uh, But if you were to have a meeting with Scott Morrison... I imagine that you take some time to examine yourself physically. Now, maybe you don't shower every day, but on that day you would. You know, you, you'd put on some deodorant, you'd check, uh, have a look in the mirror, right? You, you'd examine yourself because you're meeting with the Prime Minister of Australia. Well, Paul's saying that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is present at the Lord's Supper, and so if you're going to commune with him, if you're going to meet with him, you better examine yourself spiritually. What does that mean? Maybe it means searching your heart for sin. Maybe it means just checking. Have I actually confessed some sin for a while? Maybe I I, want to confess my sins to God. Uh, There is that unreconciled relationship with that person. Maybe it's not that big a deal, but I'd really like to be on better terms with them. I'm going to follow up with that brother or sister. So what we're going to try to do uh, to aid this is that a week in advance of the Lord's Supper from now on, we're just going to say, guys, don't forget that we're sharing in the Lord's Supper next Sunday. Please take some time this week to prepare your hearts to meet with Christ and his people. That's all. Examine yourselves. A second, eating worthily involves discerning the body. Verse 29. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. 
Uh, the words of Christ aren't actually there in the original language. There's lots of debate. It really just says, are those who eat and drink without discerning the body? I, th- I think it's right to put in, of Christ in, but they're probably kind of later additions to try and make sense of what Paul was saying. But it does mean there's some debate here. Does the body of Christ mean uh, refer exclusively to the church, for example? And so the, the idea is that uh, people ought not partake of the Lord's Supper unless they have a genuine sense that they're a part of God's family. And actually, uh, a child can have a sense that they're a part of God's family uh, from when they're very young. So they should be free to take the Lord's Supper. Uh, our position as a church, and I think it is that in the immediate context, right, verses 23 to 27, uh, and in fact, uh, in, oh, I won't go there, there's too much of a time, but uh, verses 23 to 27, uh, the body of Christ always refers to the body of Christ himself. Not not the body of Christ, the church, but the body of Christ, the body and blood of Christ. So eating worthy, uh, worthily isn't just a, a matter of having a genuine sense that you're a part of God's family, but uh, that you're a part, that you're a child of God uh, solely because of the body and blood of Christ. Christ's body broken and blood shed on the cross. In fact, it's recognising that when you receive the bread and juice, in faith, you're not just receiving bread and juice, you're receiving Christ. And all the benefits of his death on the cross. That's what it means to discern or, or recognise the body. And so when we share in the Lord's Supper, all the benefits of Christ's death on the cross are not only kind of signified to us, they're sealed to us. We have this real assurance of what Christ has done for us. And that's why the Corinthians' unworthy eating is such a big deal. You know, some of you read the end of this passage and you're just like, it's just a sign, Paul. Get over it. Like surely anyone can munch on a bit of bread and remember that Jesus died for them. But that just, I just don't think that's how Paul sees it. Why is it such a big deal? Look in verses 30 to 34. The basic point in these verses is that if we don't judge ourselves appropriately before we come to the Lord's table, if we don't judge ourselves, checking that we're preparing and sharing the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, uh, we risk experiencing God's judgment. That's how it reads, isn't it? And Paul's saying that that's what's happened in Corinth. The Lord's Supper, rather than being a place of receiving God's blessing, has become a place of being disciplined by God. And God, in his kindness, is disciplining them so that they would escape final judgment. You notice that. It's God's kindness that he would bring them back. And Paul, of course, with his authority as an apostle, is making a one-to-one connection uh, between some people being weak and sick and, and some having died. He's saying, like, this is, this is the evidence. Now, we're not going to say that. Of course. We're not apostles. Uh, but we do think this is serious. I, I wonder if your worship of God in general and your observance of the Lord's Supper uh, has room for this kind of view of God. Does God really take his worship this seriously? Well, he kind of does. Which is why he sent his son to die on the cross for us. It was a big deal. 
So this is one of the reasons why our policy as a church is that we think it's wise for children to wait until they can do both of these things, at least in an age-appropriate way, until they can examine themselves and discern the body so that they can take a partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. As far as possible, we want the Lord's Supper to be a place where we experience and receive the fullness of God's blessing and not any of his chastisement, his discipline, his, his judgment. As well as I said earlier, that will mean that some children uh, will be present at the Lord's Supper but not partake of the Lord's Supper. And actually, actually we think that's for their spiritual good. On, on some level we think it's for their good to be reminded that the bread and juice will do them no good unless they first take Christ in faith. It's not for their good if they have taken Christ in faith. It's not for their good if they can discern the body and can examine themselves. Of course, they should do a profession of faith and share in the Lord's Supper with his people. But if we're not sure of that yet, we're not sure they've taken the, Lord's, uh, the Lord in saving faith, then we think it is for their good. So some children will uh, perhaps be present but not partake. Uh, but uh, we do want them to be included as those who are present. Uh, and so maybe this will work for some, maybe not for everyone. Uh, but from now on we're going to provide a, a little kind of uh, age-appropriate teaching card. The idea being that families can come forward together. I think there'll be one for kind of crèche age kids and one for older kids. Uh, instead of taking the bread and juice, if your child's not ready... They take a card, you have a chance to talk about the card. We'll try to leave some more space and time for you to do that and to reflect on the meaning and significance of the Lord's Supper together. So there it is. That's uh, the Union and Communion series. Uh, that's uh, some explanation of our church's position on uh, the Lord's Supper. And uh, as I said, you can uh, pick up one of these at the table at the back or you'll get it on email during the week. Uh, I guess what we've tried to do in this series is provide some clarity. We didn't want anyone to say, oh, I had no idea you believed that. That's so on these three issues, we just wanted to be transparent and say, this is what we believe. As a Presbyterian church, this is what we believe with regard to church membership, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We want to be clear on what we believe. And second, we want it to be clear on, on why it is that we believe it. And honestly, it's because it's what we honestly think the Bible teaches. That's what I've tried to show tonight. Now, you might disagree with that. That's, that's okay. But that's why we hold the position. None of the, myself and none of the elders are born and bred Presbyterians. All of us have come to this position by conviction based on studying God's word. And so that's what we honestly think the Bible teaches. Uh, at the same time, we, we want to assure you, uh, I want to assure you on, on behalf of the elders, that we absolutely recognise that these are not matters of first importance and that faithful, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians can have different positions. I, I recognise that. Absolutely, we, we recognise that. Uh, and so if you disagree with us on one or two or maybe all of these things, uh, I just want to say it's okay you're still a brother or sister in Christ who trusts in the Lord Jesus. We love you as a brother or sister in Christ. You're a valued part of our church. Even though 
I recognize that hearing some of these things for some of you might not make you feel valued. Because we've got a difference of view. So we're not asking you to agree with us on everything, but we are asking you to make every effort to respect these positions that we have as a, as a Presbyterian church so that we can seek to move forward together to maintain and strengthen our unity as a church. So I guess just one last thing I'd say is uh, if you are someone who's found some of the things you've heard in this series hard to hear, you've clearly got a difference of opinion, uh, let me encourage you, please do speak to us. To me, to one of the elders that you know, right, please speak to us because we, we're really, we'd much prefer to have godly conversation, mutual understanding. Um, yeah, we'd love to be able to do that. Uh, let me pray. I'm sure I've gone too long, but you know, some important things to talk about. Our God and, our God and Father, we uh, thank you. Um, we thank you that you want us to come into your presence and to commune with you through the death of our Lord Jesus. Uh, we thank you that as our Holy Father, that you, uh, uh, we acknowledge that you as our Holy Father uh, dictate the terms on which we can approach you and share in fellowship with you. Uh, we pray we'd be clear when we think about the Lord's Supper on what those terms are. Uh, we pray, Father, for our church um, uh, that where the aims of this series have happened, uh, that where we have provided some clarity on what we believe, we pray that that would be fanned into flame. Where we've provided clarity on why we believe it, we pray that that would be fanned into flame too. And we pray, Father, that where there is a disagreement of any kind, uh, that we would show ourselves uh, to be those who have your approval in how we deal with differences and divisions. Uh, that we would approach one another with gentleness and humility uh, and respect and a willingness to understand, even if we never come to share in the same position on these matters. We praise you, Father, that we're united on matters of first importance, uh, that our Lord Jesus uh, died uh, for our sins, that he was buried uh, and that he was raised. Uh, we praise you for the unity we have in those core truths. Uh, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.